Hello and welcome back to part two of week 10, which is focusing on special needs, but also um, sort of more just, well, not focusing on, but at least recognizing the diversity of diversity when we're developing career development programs. It's all about developing your talents within an organization and as an employee, so individual. So I ended the last podcast by mentioning one of the really underestimated and wonderful career development tools that is available in any organization, and it is called mentoring. And the aspects and benefits of mentoring are multiple, but there are many considerations that we really need to consider, and I'm going to do a few caveats as we go through and just keep remembering the diversity of diversity and the special populations that we have that have different needs. So remember I said, it doesn't matter who you are, you have unique and special needs, uh, depending on the scenario, the situation. So try to not think of people as being uh, special needs or diverse, more as just being a human with some interesting things, as we all have. And so mentoring is a relationship that usually occurs between junior and senior people, and it happens in many settings. So it's not just in corporations, but we're focusing on corporations here because we're talking about career development. So in this specific field, we're looking at relationships between junior and senior colleagues that contribute to career development. What does that mean? Well, it serves two functions, and one is that psychosocial piece where not only are you feeling that you are competent, especially as a new person in a new role, new company, but also knowing what your identity is and discovering that within the company. So it may be on a similar parallel to the stages of uh, developing your own identity as a, a person, but... There's also that social aspect that is also about going to somebody and making social connection explicit. And this isn't often talked about, but that mentoring piece really is about not only attending to the feelings of competency and identity within the individual, it also attends to the human basic need for connection. And if done well, this can be just a really key piece of a career development program. The second function of mentoring is with regards to career. And that helps junior members understand relationships and culture and therefore find out what the career ladder is in the organization that they're working in. So it's really an explicit way of showing that they can move up the ladder. And so when you're designing your program and you're considering including mentoring, you really have to think about a couple of things. And what is the career function? So the career function of mentoring is to mentor or sponsor junior members by helping them make interpersonal connections. And this was what I was talking about with that social need that we have to connect. 
But more than that, it actually, in a non-performance appraisal, so non-intimidating way, gives them feedback about what they're doing and how maybe, you know, if they're going down the wrong track, it might re-guide them. So you're saving yourself money for having a project going pear-shaped to having a project being very successful just by having feedback at the right time in the right place and, you know, especially with a new staff member, quite constant, um, unless you see that they're picking up and taking it off taking off on their own. It provides support and it gives them the opportunity because if you get to know, say you're a senior member in the company and you see that that new client has competence in this particular area, you want to foster opportunities and create them these opportunities so that they can demonstrate that competence. That helps build their identity. And then if you know that they're doing well on that, Let's provide challenging work opportunities. And so in addition to that, uh, the psychosocial function is fulfilled by role modeling. And what that means is as a senior member, supposedly you know what the organizational behaviors and cultures are and what's prioritized by the company, what's the value of the corporation, which we talked about, is very distinct. A corporation value is very distinct from an individual value. And then you provide ongoing support and reinforcement when those organizational behaviors are being replicated by the new employee. And in some ways, it's acting as a friend. But remember, there's always these little ethical layers and so professional protocols about how are you a friend when you're in a senior role and just being aware of power paradigms, especially when you're working with diverse populations because they are already aware of power paradigms and may be very well aware of being discriminated against as well as being... Uh, subject to some special treatment or discrimination and may have had that all their life. So just keep those in mind when you're um, working with your diverse populations. How that looks, so I'll talk a little bit more as we go along. So when you're designing a mentoring program, the obvious beneficiary of the mentoring is a junior member but the senior member gets to feel good as well because guess what? You're re-identifying what you're good at. You're showing that you can do this and you can model this for the new member of your corporation and you're contributing to the success of the organization by building a social support and network. And that reciprocal support from the junior member also helps you sort of feel validated and connected as well because often managerial positions are quite isolating and so you actually can be in a supervisory role and have a real connection with a younger person and that's that again that human need a basic human need for connection so also you you might just remember when you were a new employee and you were mentored and what helped and what was working for you, these might be the tips and tools of the trade that you're going to use. So when you are mentoring, you must 
remember this. Cross-gender mentoring can reduce performance. I shall repeat that. Cross-gender mentoring can reduce performance, as well as feelings of competence and well-being. I'll go into that more, but I do want to also add the caveat. I actually, as a woman, respond really quite well to male mentors. So again, this is where I quite want to highlight again, it's very individual. I am an outlier, so I recognize that I am not the norm and I am one of a very small percentile. So generally speaking, there are five really amazingly good reasons scientifically researched as to why you do not put a woman with a man or a man with a woman, like you just don't, okay? Um, that's a general rule, but as I said, special and diverse people, such as myself, I'm a, a special individual as a woman uh, and an independent woman, so... I do fit some of those outlier categories and um, my diversity is quite interesting in that way. But for me, if I'm a manager in a corporation and I know that there's, especially in cultures like Asia and Malaysia, where, and especially Malaysia where there's a lot of religious and cultural uh, stigmatization between male and female mentoring anyway, so very much that gender division uh, you really want to look at these things. So one, anxiety about the boundaries of the relationship as it develops, particularly concerns about intimacy and sexual attraction. So you have to have a really strong, independent, assertive female that is a junior when you put them with a male. And you also have to have the same in a, in a male because we know that there can be really big legal suits around sexual harassment. So just be aware of that. I just wouldn't do it. But again, be aware that if they're lesbian, um, se senior or um, gay, there's some things that you, there's nuances. So just be aware, okay? These are, these are things to just suss out before you match a mentor. Reliance on traditional sex roles results in a protective attitude by the male and a failure to establish independent roles. So what I often see is that I am a single woman and people assume that I am not able to do this, that, or the other. Most people, once they get to know me for five minutes, know that that is not the case. But there's still that general perception that women are the weaker sex and cannot do things and need a lot of help. And I'm like, I can lift that box. I do weights, okay? And I do, you know, taekwondo. I'm not as uh, vulnerable as you would think, and I'm definitely not as weak as you would think. So don't sort of also put a very older traditional female with a very modern young progressive female, right? Because you are going to have a clash. So again, you need to match your people. And it's not just on diverse population, it's on individual makeup and personality. And you might even do your best and have a great match, you think, in your head, but then some personality conflict occurs. So, you know, be prepared to make mistakes. At least you're trying and you have 
that ethic of doing no harm and bringing out the best in your people. Ineffective role modeling is conducted by um, males because of different expectations for females in male-dominated organizations. Again, we have talked endlessly, and I will always talk endlessly, about gender role expectations and how that limits females into roles. It even limits ethnic and aged and LGBTQI even more. But males in organizations have different expectations for females, especially in male-dominated organizations. And um, in cultures such as Malaysia and Asia, that male patriarchy is in Saudi Arabia and UAE and let's talk Middle East and let's talk Greece and let's talk Italy, let's talk most of the world. There's this male domination of the world. We don't earn the same and that's we are trying to change that. So please consider this um, when you are matching mentors. And cross-gender mentoring relations are often viewed suspiciously by other managers and employees because, you know, what's going on between those two? With the result that the public image of the relationship becomes the primary concern rather than the well-being of the female. So if you're matching a high-level white male with a new, young, ethnic female who's maybe Muslim um, or maybe, you know, Asian or whatever, but just different ethnicity, there's always suspicions around what is going on in that relationship. So just try as much as possible to match ethnicities, and it's not always possible, but try. And when a woman is working in a male-dominated organization and is given special attention, peer resentment results. And so women can be very, very nasty and women can really pick other women to pieces. And they think that if you're a woman that's being given special attention, that's unfair. And you may be the best woman for the job and in fact the best person for the job regardless of gender. So you may be the best person for the job and you are competent you, are, you excel in your field, you're educated, and you're um, progressive and really can bring a lot to the company. That doesn't matter. Um, peer resentment can be really quite, um, quite devastating. And the result is that the woman can be forced to choose between her mentor and her peers, and that puts a lot of pressure on her. And either choice is then detrimental to her development, but it's also detrimental to the company. And when I was talking about thinking of loss, these are prime causes for people to leave a company if they're being bullied or being, you know, resented and not there's little cliques occurring. These are parts of a career development program that can be really looked at. And uh, when I was mentioning earlier that these things happen in organizations when I was talking about mentoring and special populations. Don't forget that sometimes people are in managerial positions and supervisory positions and they don't have the best intentions. So again, just be aware and know that we may make mistakes and that's okay. Just learn 
from the mistakes, as Prof always said. You learn from your mistakes, okay? So, now that we've sort of thought about all of these little nuances and we've talked about the needs assessment, we've talked about questionnaires, we've talked about mentoring and just having some caveats around who we're going to match with whom, let's look at designing the program. And just to finish up, when you're talking about designing a program with cross-gender mentoring, when Bowen, so yes, we're talking Bowen, concluded from his study that gender-related problems may not be as great as some might anticipate, although envy, jealousy by spouses and others, and snide remarks by colleagues can all result from cross-gender mentoring relationships. And Bowen has really tagged in on something that I think is very key, as I was mentioning before. For me, actually, I find um, because of the nature of the way that I am and my assertiveness, it can be considered threatening to females and especially females in positions of power. And so it's sometimes better to match me with a man because they don't, <laughs> I'm tiny, and I'm like, so I don't, you know, they're not worried about me. And and I operate on that level of open honesty and transparency, so I don't really ne really negotiate those female passive-aggressive ways very well, um, just simply because uh, of my identity and my upbringing. And, um, uh, yeah, so, and my father was my mentor, so, of course, I attached to him as a mentor, so I'm able to deal with men as mentors. And so just... Just be aware that sometimes you can have male and female matches, but it, you just have to be very, very careful around that. And these mentoring programs are really increasingly popular, but um, if you don't do it the right way, as I mentioned, it's going to fail. So one of the things that we might talk about is voluntary mentoring versus mandated mentoring and why that's important. So it's really important to note that if you're imposing a mentoring role on somebody, they may not want it. They, might, they may not have the capacity, they may be stressed to the max, like let's look at COVID-19. You have no idea what's going on in the home of people who are stressed about losing their jobs or have lost their jobs. So please don't just assign someone to mentor. What you want to do is sort of, again, put out questionnaires or put out feelers and say, you know what, I've got a new employee coming in. I think they're going to bring a lot to the company. Would you be interested in mentoring them? Why don't you meet them? Give me some feedback. If it works, let's talk about it and I will talk to that. So it seems really important. I mean, it just seems common sense to me, but you should screen your mentors carefully and you enlist them through voluntary participation. And then, you know, once people become mentors, they often love it, so they become mentors again. So during my teaching program, my um, teaching supervisor when I was a wee young thing was, uh, he'd done it. Actually, I was his first, and, he, and um, he continued to do it after. He enjoyed the role. And so... You can also then provide mentoring training. So you that's another win-win. They get this training. 
um, and you teach them how to be mentors. And some of the things are layered, so you, they can take that home and learn from their mentoring if they have children how to work with kids, their own kids. And the organization can do the formal training about that, but acquaint the, acquaint the mentor with potential problems that could happen if they are cross-gender matched. And also what can be expected in cross-cultural mentoring processes. So it's also about fostering a normal mentoring process instead of forcing it, because we all know what forcing someone to do something is like and how successful that is as I um, say all the time ask me to do something and I will do my utmost to deliver the best product to you and for you tell me to do it yeah so HR and HR development what's the difference so HR is human resources human resources development is where we're looking at actually integrating career development programs into the human resources development program. And they work as a synergistic whole. So they're working together, not against each other. And that career development program then should enhance the function of HR. And guess what? You have a good career development program, you have a happy and healthy human um, resources program, and you have a happy and healthy workforce. So the following are examples of how you can incorporate HR development with career development. And one is, we've already talked about it, performance appraisal and training and job posting. Skills inventories and promotability forecasts. I won't mention too much about that because basically that's talking about what you do well, what your skills are, what we might need to foster in you. And of course, promotability forecast speaks for itself. Is the company expanding or decreasing? If it's expanding, you have a lot more opportunity to have a promotion and your forecast will be high. And then compensation systems. So uh, sometimes companies offer bonuses uh, for good work. Um, maybe the mentor program, one of the bonuses is, you know, usually mentors are people that are in the helping profession, such as myself. Like we like to mentor people to do well. And so you're capitalizing on an innate need and that really fosters morale and good feelings. But so that's a altruistic compensation that's not necessarily monetary it's just you know you do something because you like it but sometimes there are bonuses so if your mentor is doing really well and um, you're judged on KPIs perhaps you and your mentee may get a bonus it's all a win-win so in performance appraisal what this HRD function looks like and can be enhanced by is uh, designing activities that prepare employees to ask specific questions of your supervisor that will help you improve at the time of the performance appraisal. So instead of walking in with knees knocking and feeling terrified, you go in armed with sort of the idea that, oh, this is also an opportunity for me to ask my boss where I can improve and what can I do to get that promotion. 
And for example, these are some questions employees may want to ask. And these can, these are not sort of something really well known, I think, in most places, unless it's trained or part of a career development program. And first question is, how does my current performance affect my promotability? So if I'm not doing well, how does that affect my performance and uh, my ability to be promoted? Or if I'm doing really, really well and I'm outshining the bosses, that could be a problem too, right? So you, this is a good question because it's the response that you're going to get that's going to tell you a lot if you're aware. What are my deficiencies? Meaning what am I, what am I not so great at? What am I... I'm not, what am I not strong in and how can I improve? How can I get better? And then asking a senior this is a great question. Based on what you know in this company, based on your knowledge of the company, how can I best prepare myself for advancement? Like I really want to make this company my life. I want to get promoted. I want to devote my time to them. What do you recommend that I do in order to achieve that goal? And then finally, what are the strategies that I can employ that will most enhance my current job performance? So let's get specific about my job here and now. What can I do to make me better so that I am going to be looked at for promotion? And so when you go into performance appraisal, as we've talked about, um, it's really, for many people, it's not a nice experience. And I think that corporations that don't make it a very healthy win-win kind of situation are really shooting themselves in the foot because this is a really great opportunity to foster. When I was talking about earlier internal advancement and making a capitalization of your existing pool so that you're not hiring new people and recruiting and paying all that money for that and orientation. You want to have people that know your company and are invested in your company and loyal to your company and you know you can rely on them to produce and be productive. So many employees report that their managers are uncomfortable in their performance appraisal sessions and therefore, you've got this kind of terse feedback, brief feedback. So it's not just the employees walking into it that aren't feeling good. It's the, um, the actual manager who's not feeling good about it. And who knows what the reasons might be around that. But if you can frame a performance appraisal into saying a performance appraisal is meant to see how you're doing and how we can get you better. And I do this with my students. Like I say... I have constructive feedback. I say I don't necessarily think that this was done well. So you tell me what you think you could have done better and then I'm going to, you know, facilitate that by telling you other ways that you may consider to do this because fostering learning and growth is what I do and what I like to do. So if we want to have that approach, then we need to train our managers to be more specific in your feedback and you need to reframe how this performance appraisal will go. And if you do that training for the managers, they're not going to feel so uncomfortable. So then that reduces the discomfort on the part of the employee. And in discussing the implications of the employee's performance, you can really make a difference. Uh, I get feedback from my students saying that my criticisms or my 
my constructive criticisms are really helpful in advancing them towards being better. And I'm not saying they're doing wonderful jobs. I mean, they may have a really wonderful innate skill, but if you're a beginning counsellor, for example, that innate skill needs to be fostered and facilitated, which is what I was talking about, developing the skill, training, doing specific enhancement. And part of that is feedback. How do you know you're not doing well if you don't get the feedback? If you think you're doing great at something and then you're like, a year or so into a course and you haven't been told, no, I'm sorry, this is not a very good skill, that's not helping. Okay, so we want to be helpful. And so we need to sort of think about the way we can provide advice regarding directions to take um, for our employee. And that is my mandate when I'm working with students and it's also what I do with clients in counselling. It's not necessarily advice, but helping them become better at what they already are. So then another piece of this career development program and what you're looking at is training. I always think there's so many things in these programs that people just don't think about. And you sort of just think, oh, a career development program and you sort of putting it together and then you realize there's so many little pieces and intricacies. So when you're actually doing training, you need to actually have companies training policies and there needs to be materials associated with that. And best if it's kind of like, you know, brochure or small point form, but it should be included in your career resource center. So it should be distributed in career counselling sessions. It should be available to everybody so that they're very clear. And again, that comes back to another of those things that I hold as key hallmarks of, of me, which is transparency. This should not be unclear. These are the policies. If you're going to attend this training, you need to get a certificate to prove you're missing work or if we've spent all this money on you, you, there's going to be some feedback from that. So those training policies need to be clear and available for everyone to see. And additionally, we've talked about this job posting piece and I, I talk about training as not, so materials about the company's training policy, yes, they should be included. But if you've got a blind or a deaf person or somebody who can't access it, you need to make sure that it's available to them. And if you, they can't see it or read it, you have to explain it to them. And that's where our diverse populations need some special attention, okay? And so secondly, same with job posting. So if you're participating in a program that's hopefully going to develop you and develop your skills and help you to achieve a promotion, how are you going to get a promotion if you don't even know that a job opening has arisen in your company? Basic question. You need to make job postings very, very clear. You need to discuss what the procedures are around um, hiring practices. And sometimes what happens is, uh, well, I know, for example, in Australia and Canada, for example, there's policies about uh, discrimination. So 
unless it's an internal posting, which this is why as a person who works in a company, if you love that company and can stay in that company, you don't have to fight some of the external stuff that's going on. You have to just fight with your colleagues, hopefully not any nepotism and favoritism, but um, we're talking ideal situation always. That's where Prof Leanne is. She's always in the ideal world, hoping for it. Let's hope for it. Even if it doesn't exist right now, we can hope that it does in some places. So we need to make sure that job posting procedures and general hiring practices are really well known to our employees. Because if we want to keep our loyal employees, we want them to see everything above board and fair. And even if sometimes people say it's unfair or that happened or whatever, whatever, if you've got a general policy where everybody's in the same playing field, you can really get rid of this um, feeling of somebody being unfairly, you know, targeted or somebody getting promotions without merit. And so these are the things that we really need to focus on is ensuring that everybody's educated on what's available, educated on hiring processes and practices. And if you are, so what I was saying about Australia and Canada and other places in the world, um, there's a non-discriminatory practice with the externals. And so sometimes it's only um, waived if they're looking for a special population and often that's Indigenous or First Nations. So I Often if you have a, an Aboriginal identified position, only Aboriginals can apply for that. And it's because it's trying to offset all the discrimination against Aboriginals, which we've already talked about, and discrimination against people. And these, comes in, these come in various forms, including education, health, access, and the list is limitless. But... We also know that if we make that a mandatory that the person, an Aboriginal must get the job, if they haven't had the access to education and they haven't had the skills and they do get the job, then it is incumbent upon the employer to train that person. And so there's some real hiring practices that you really need to be aware of the laws. Now that's of course in uh, Canada and Australia. Now, in places such as Malaysia, there's actually uh, discrimination in the favour of Malays. So um, my understanding is Malays uh, get first choice, then Chinese Malay, then Indian Malay, and then we have all our immigrants and ethnic um, people. And then on top of that, there's the layering of the white expat community, which uh, so you, it's just really important that everybody has access to the same information. So it's a fair playing field in as much as it can be, knowing that when you're a diverse population and you have disability or if you have ethnicity or if you have race issues, it's never a fair playing field. And that is just putting it out there on the table as it is. And I am sorry that the world is not ideal. So... <laughs> Having said that, now let's look at program implementation. So Leibowitz, Farron and Kay in 86 recommend that a career development program should be built on existing programs and practices. I'm going to put a caveat around that. If those programs and practices are not healthy and are not helping the company and are not helping the employees, then you need to review those programs 
review those practices. If there's some good in it, well, keep the good, but you might have to toss out a heck of a lot of the bad. So you might be throwing away 90% of the program and you may be actually kind of eliminating the person who's implemented. So, you know, you've got some layers and nuances that can cause enemies and cause problems. But if you want to help your company grow, this is what you might need to do. And that's revisiting your values and your vision and revisiting your profit loss margins. And I think after COVID-19, this is a brilliant time to really look at where you are moving ahead. And that's where career counsellors can step in and help you with revisiting your vision. But let's go on with program implementation. But just be aware that it might be great if there's something really, really good and it's pre-existing, but you still might have to tweak it. So always, always evaluate the programs that are existing, evaluate the personnel that are training, and evaluate the values of the company so that you can move everything in a forward direction. And that is how we keep companies alive, by allowing them to kind of cull what's not working, focus on the profit, but focus on productivity and happy workers that will give you the profit. And so according to them, for maximum effectiveness, the program should not only be built on existing programs, but also be carefully integrated with them. And again, I'm going to say that the caveat would be if that program is existing but not good, you don't want to integrate it with them. You may be starting a whole new program. So I just want you to keep those things in the back of the mind. And if you've, if you've got a very diverse population, so this was written in 1986. We're talking 40 years ago, pretty much. The world is just a hugely different place and it's already just changed markedly under COVID. So some of these things may or may not be applicable, but there's some, there's some good reasons. If there's a great existing program, a good pre-existing program, then keep it because you don't want to throw good money after good programs. Like just keep what you've got and tweak it and make it even better. And I think this is the really key piece. It doesn't matter that this one was um, from 1986, Mirabel. Um, even if your methodology and program design are really great and fantastic and you've just you've just put me in prof you put together this awesome program it's just fantastic it touches all these key points um you've you know put together such a great thing but guess what neither the managers nor the employees want it this is you. You did a program. You did your questionnaire. You developed something. You got all this data. You got all the statistics, and you've developed something off in the left field, out in outfield, or way out of the stadium. No, prof. That's not the way you do it. All right. You ask what they want, and then you do what they want because you're not going to have buy-in. It's like me telling you, you know. Um, Oh, you all want to find out how to do um, ACT. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not really interested in that. I'll give you some interpersonal therapy. You might be interested in that. Well, you are. I know a lot of you are. But if the demand is for ACT, guess what you should be giving them? ACT. 
If the demand is for interpersonal, give them interpersonal, right? So if you don't get ownership, that means a stake of buy-in. I've talked about this earlier. The buy-in from the managers and the employees, the program is not going to work. It's going to really fail. And so if you're putting money into it, you want to make sure it's going to work. And this was a great suggestion, and I would say this about anything. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Advisory groups made up of managers and employees is the best because you've got a mix. You've got people speaking on behalf of the employees, people speaking on behalf of the managers. But don't forget our diverse populations may not be represented there. They're often the minority and they're often feeling that they can't speak up, so their voices may not be representative. So do keep that in mind. If you are developing something, you also want to have a means of gauging what special and diverse populations might need in the organization. And again, there's some specific suggestions from Mirabelle. Meeting with the executive vice president or the CEO of the organization to clarify, okay, I've got a program that I want to put out. What's your commitment to this? What would you like in this? What, what content do you want in this? Um, this is what I've sort of fleshed out. This is what I've done. Does this meet with what you want? And let's clarify your goals. What do you want out of the whole program? So not just what's um, the organization's commitment to the program, not just what's the content of the program, but let's Say I am going to deliver you a training on mentoring. How do you want how do you see this working in affecting positively your bottom line? That's the buy-in from the executive. And then you want to have similar meetings with the other managers, so not just the CEO. So you you have to have the CEO. If you don't have the CEO on board, guess what? He's not going to fund your program. So get that CEO on board. And then get all your managers on board and say, hey, look, if we do this mentoring thing, that's going to offload a little work. And then I can teach you a performance um, appraisal or feedback way that's sort of more of a mentoring way. And let's train you in that. Get that buy-in because then you also talk to your employees and say, how would you like to walk into a performance appraisal and be able to ask some questions so that you know what you need to do to get that promotion that you want? And of course, in uh, bigger organizations where HR is a real unit in and of itself, you need to have the buy-in from HR because if you don't have that interlinking and that enmesh, not enmesh in a bad way, but if it's not incorporated into the HR development program, the career development program will also not go well. So you need to make all these things happen to make the career development program viable. And so these are the steps to start a new one or to evaluate a pre-existing one and see what, you know, what's going on. Remember I talked about this um, a few podcasts ago where you've got a, a career program running and people are just like, I'm not doing that. That's really stupid. It does not apply to my job. I'm in the... Um, graphic design program which is very creative and you want me to sit down and learn how to do the bookkeeping no that's not going to work so 
program implementation. Step one, design the program based on your initial data gathering and um, piloting. So the question is, based on that, what is the need? Fill the gap, provide the need. Run and evaluate a small pilot program. So you don't necessarily have to run out this like 100,000 strong, you know, big company, Amazon, let's roll this big thing out for everybody. No, if you can start with a very small select pilot group and it might even be under 20 people. It might be 10 people. Run it, evaluate it. And once that evaluation data of the pilot program is collected, you look through it. And again, this is where you're data driven. You look at the program, you know where you need to fine tune it, you know what you need to change. Then you can come back with the offering to the employers and say, okay, so this is what I ran. These are the data. This is the statistic. You know, this is what is needed in an organization. They need to see the figures. And then you offer it to the employees because it's been successful. And so word of mouth is very, very important. And so the benefits, I think, are self-explanatory. I've just done two weeks of talking about career development programs and how we as career counsellors can be really instrumental in helping people, A, keep their jobs, B, develop career pathways, C, contribute to their organisation, D, belong. In, and feel like a sense of self-worth and meaning in their work. And at the same time, so simultaneously, the benefits to the corporation are maintaining and keeping their employees. Um, the staff retention is really high, so there's no cost in recruitment and retraining. There's a loyal, happy, productive workforce. So profit is good, so we can keep going. So even though career counsellors in business and industry may need to concern themselves more with corporate profit, we still need to be concerned with the impact on the individual employees of any program we design. And it's actually really fun to design a program. I love doing this. This is it's kind of like creating a course. It's very creative and, you know, if you've got sort of this is the marketing, you've done the analysis, you've done the needs assessment, you've looked at your special populations, you've sort of incorporated things, maybe you're going to run one specially for, you know, you're blind and you're deaf, or maybe maybe you're going to run one for your women who are returning to the workforce, or maybe you're going to run one for your LGBTQI. Like, who cares what you're doing? It's fun. And so you really need to be concerned with who is doing your course and the impact. And again, I always say, do no harm and meet your clients where they are. And if you do that, that's going to have profound impact on your employees. And the evaluation results, for example, of one career development in IBM, in San Jose, California, showed that employers reported improvement in their ability to engage in self-assessment and planning. So you're empowering them by giving them self-assessment tools and teaching them how to plan. Not maybe they want to leave the company, but maybe it's just about planning for their life in the company. Or what if something adverse happens? What have I got 
for the, you know, so there's so many benefits. Higher acceptance of responsibility and ownership of their career planning. So my students have said, like, we didn't even know. If we'd have known when I first started talking about teaching career across the lifespan, so students in school as young as kindy should be starting to learn about, you know, work and the world of work. And we should sort of incrementally teach them more as they go. So by the time they get to a time in their life when they've built their identity, so they're sort of coming out of their later teens, 16, 17, 18, or even 15. And again, we know that chronologically that changes and people are different on the spectrum. But um, that they've got an idea. And so they can accept responsibility and they can make plans and they can take ownership of it and say, I want to do this and these are the steps I need to get there and I don't know this so I need to go and see Prof Leanne she's going to help me with that but oh uh, actually career sense is going to help me with that so I'm going to go see them and oh research I might not go I might go down and do that course at the library so these all things are ownership and empowerment and responsibility and then you can also look at career opportunities within the company. So as a review, career counseling and career development programs in business organization parallels, but on a much larger level with a different keynote and the keynote being corporate profit and being aware of corporate values but it very much aligns with individual career counseling in that you're searching for the values, you're finding what needs to fit, you're finding the need of the outcome of the goal. So if the, pro if the company wants to um, expand, then what do I need to provide to bring my workforce along? If, I, if we've got a sudden technological increase, which is the Zoom revolution as we call it, and you could be using MS Teams or Google or whatever it is, but we do, we call it the Zoom revolution. What do I need to upskill my workforce in the use of this tool? And just by allowing people to participate, and there's a difference, there's a really fine line between over-enforcing, so saying, well, you need to get two certificates from Coursera, or you need to also do this, and you need to do this, and you need to do this, and it's not relevant to what I want to learn. Coursera could be, say, because I would pick a course that I would want to learn. But there's a difference. So you really have to sort of work or as a career counsellor is kind of very intriguing and very interesting because you're working with employees, you're working with supervisors, managers, CEOs, and um, a whole different ball game, a whole new world has been opened up in your mind. And I just hope that you're looking forward to maybe that possibility. Who thought of that? I think it is going to be a growing field. And in Asia, I think it's, there's much need for it. So in our next class, next week, we're going to start uh, finalizing program evaluation and uh, we're going to look at case studies of people and career counseling. So this is Prof. Dr. Leanne signing out from week 10, part two of career development programs in business organizations with a focus on diverse populations. Thank you for listening.
If you like this podcast, give it a thumbs up.